Friends, our um, scripture reading tonight comes from Romans chapter 3 and we're going to read the verses 21 to 26. The word should also be up on the screen. Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, through the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen. My friends, after a uh, a short break from our Living Theology series, we're we're getting back into it again this afternoon. And so you might recall that uh, we've been focusing most recently on the person of Jesus Christ. We have considered his background, his divinity, his humanity, his names, and also his uniqueness. But now we want to move from focusing on who Jesus is to focusing on what he does, from his person to his task. What exactly did he come to do? What is his function or his calling? And that's an interesting question, isn't it? For I'm sure that we, and many people for that matter, can provide a simple answer to that question. Jesus came to save But I do wonder if we're able to give a more comprehensive answer. Do we really know the full extent of why he came into this world? Well, a good place to start is in Hebrews chapter 1. For in the first three verses of that book, we read this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Here in this passage we see that Jesus came to earth in order to speak. He is God's ultimate prophet. We also see that he came to provide purification for sin and so he is also God's ultimate priest. And we're told that he came as the appointed heir of all things 
who now sits at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so, Jesus is also God's ultimate king. That's three important roles. And you may know that each of these were central to God's relationship with his people in the Old Testament. Prophets, priests and kings. They were the ones who connected the people to their creator. But if we truly want to understand the richness of Jesus' calling, then we we also need to understand that he is the final fulfilment of all three. My friends, Jesus Christ is our supreme prophet, our supreme priest, and our supreme king. In Lord's Day 12 of the Heidelberg Catechism, the question is asked, why is he called Christ, meaning anointed? And the answer, because he has been ordained by God the Father and has been anointed with the Holy Spirit to be our chief prophet and teacher, who perfectly reveals to us the secret counsel and will of God for our deliverance. Our only high priest, who has set us free by the one sacrifice of his body and who continually pleads our cause with the Father and our eternal King who governs us by his word and spirit and who guards us and keeps us in the freedom he has won for us. Prophet, priest and king. Over three weeks we're going to consider the significance of each of these roles. And tonight we begin with the middle one, Jesus calling to be our ultimate priest. Now the first thing that I want to say about this tonight is that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is inseparably connected to his death. He did not actually need to die in order to be a prophet, nor did he need to die in order to be a king, but he did have to die in order to become our great high priest. But do you know why? Are you able to explain why the cross is absolutely essential and necessary? Can you answer the question if someone would ask you, why did Jesus have to die? Well, that is what we are addressing here tonight. And to find the answer, we need to go right back to basics, to our most fundamental understanding of God. You see, my friends, it all begins with the fact that our God is a holy God. In Leviticus chapter 19, he tells Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. The prophet Isaiah declared, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And in Revelation chapter 15, we are told, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. Our Lord is utterly holy. Just think about that for a moment. He is perfect in all of his ways. He is incapable of evil or wickedness of any kind. 
He is the epitome of moral purity. He is absolutely righteous. He is totally blameless. He is completely virtuous. But the problem is that we're not. Since the Garden of Eden, we, and in fact all of humanity, have proven beyond any doubt that we are in fact imperfect and impure and immoral. We are born into sin and we add to our guilt every day. God told us how to live, but we fall so far short. Even though he is the one who gave us life, we are so quick to fail to give him the honour and the glory he is due. And in fact, we rebel against him. We harm ourselves, we harm each other, and we harm our world. And as a result of this unholiness that we have, we are completely separated from a holy God. He cannot tolerate us in our fallen state. We cannot know him, we cannot approach him, we cannot dwell with him. And in fact, we are deserving of his eternal judgment and condemnation. In Romans chapter 1, it says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. And in chapter 2, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. To be perfectly frank, my friends, that could have been the end of it. Our holy God created us, but yet we turned against him. And he has every right to send us to a godless eternity in hell. But the amazing thing is that this is not the end of the story. And that, my friends, is because while he is a God of absolute holiness, he is also a God of incredible love. In Exodus chapter 34, he says, The Lord, the Lord the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Or in Psalm 86, but you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And I'm sure we all know that the Apostle John tells us very clearly that God is love. You see, when the Lord created us, the human race, he did not do so coldly or clinically. He did so with warmth and affection, making us in his own image and designing us to be in relationship with him. 
And so despite his righteous anger towards our rebellion, there is also mercy and compassion and forgiveness and grace. Just as he is utterly holy, he is also utterly loving. But then that leaves us with a question, doesn't it? How can it be that a pure and righteous God could express his love and compassion toward people like us? Can he simply overlook our transgressions as though they never even happened? Can he enter into relationship with us, ignoring the fact that we defy him? Can he let us into his heaven with all of our filth intact? Well, of course not, because that would go completely against his nature. For my friends, not only is our God holy and loving, but he is also a God of perfect justice. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses declared, He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. Or Isaiah chapter 61, For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And it's a result of his justice that Paul tells us in Romans 6, for the wages of sin is death. And so, my friends, the Lord cannot simply ignore or overlook our terrible crimes. They, must be abs- they absolutely must be penalised. Justice needs to be done for him to be true to himself. To quote author Wayne Gruden, there is an eternal, unchangeable requirement in the holiness and justice of God that sin be paid for. But even though the Lord cannot ignore our sin, he can lift it from us and place it upon another. He can, in his grace, allow a substitute to take our place and bear the punishment that should be ours. And you see, this is the very message that the Lord proclaimed throughout the priesthood of the Old Testament. You see, it was early in Israel's history when the Lord commanded them to anoint priests to serve in the tabernacle and later on in the temple. And their role was to be mediators between God and his people. Their task was to facilitate the purification of guilty sinners so they could be made right with their Lord once more. And how did they do this? They did it through sacrifice. If you have read your Old Testament, then you will know that there are many, many pages devoted to the description of and the rules surrounding the sacrificial system. There were many types of offerings and many occasions on which they were made. But at the heart of this entire complex system was the basic concepts of substitution and atonement. A person could bring a sacrifice, usually an animal, but one that was unblemished. And then the priest would slaughter it and burn it on the altar, offering it up to the Lord. And thus the sin of that person was put onto that animal 
who suffered and died in their place. And through that, they could experience forgiveness and could be reconciled to their Lord. And so in the early verses of Leviticus, it says this, If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You see, this word atonement describes the way in which a person can be made right with God through sacrifice. The animal is a substitute for the sinner, taking their deserved punishment. And thus the person's sin is atoned for as they are cleansed and made right in God's sight. But yet there was still a problem. For while the Old Testament sacrifices could symbolise the removal of sin, they could never actually take the sin away. While they were a demonstration of what was needed, they could never actually appease the wrath of God. Listen to these verses from Hebrews chapter 10. It says, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. The problem with that old system was twofold. First, there was a problem with the priests, for they themselves were unholy people. How can a sinner bring sacrifice on behalf of another? It just doesn't work. But secondly, there was a problem with the sacrifices they offered. For how can an animal bear the penalty for a human? That doesn't work either. And so the entire system was never intended to actually deal with sin. But the reason the Lord gave it was to point forward to the one who would. And that brings us to the one who came to fulfill this Old Testament priesthood and in fact the entire sacrificial system. That brings us to our Lord Jesus Christ. For my friends, Jesus came to be our ultimate priest. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Jesus is not like those priests of old, for while he shares our humanity, he does not share in our sinfulness. 
So in his holiness, his perfect holiness, he can enter that heavenly sanctuary as our perfect mediator, our perfect intercessor, our perfect priest before God. But what does he then offer? Well, my friends, this is the most amazing thing of all. Because you see, our Lord Jesus did not come to offer the blood of bulls and goats, but our Lord Jesus came to offer up his very self. For he is not only the perfect priest, but the perfect sacrifice. And so, even though he is the almighty and glorious Son of God, the the second person of the Trinity, the one through whom this entire universe was created. He is also the one who was humiliated and who suffered and died for us. For he came to offer himself for our forgiveness. He came to be our substitute so that we can be made holy. He came to pay our penalty and to take our punishment so that we can find peace with our God. And thus we find the answer to our question, yes, Jesus did have to die, for that was the only way that he could save us from the guilt and the judgment and the condemnation of our sin. It was the only way that he could actually bear the full penalty that should have been ours the only way that he could be our perfect sacrifice of atonement in hebrews chapter 2 it says for this reason he had to be made like them fully human in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to god and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Or over in 1 John chapter 2, John writes, He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And in chapter 4, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But that then brings us to the passage that we read earlier from Romans chapter 3. The Apostle Paul has just outlined how there is no one righteous, not even one. He has outlined how we all stand condemned by the law and are deserving of judgment. But then in verse 21, he says this, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law And the prophets testify. He says we could never become righteous on our own, by our own efforts. But yet the Lord has provided a way. For our God is not only holy and just, but he is loving and gracious. And so he says this righteousness, it's given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. He says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. And how could this be? 
Look at verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Oh, my friends, do you see this tonight? There is only one possible way that our Lord could ever have redeemed us from the fate that we deserved. And that is by the perfect sacrifice of atonement offered by our perfect high priest as he suffered and died in our place. That is why it is that he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. That's why it is that he subjected himself to the devil's temptations in the wilderness. That's why it is that he endured all that constant pressure from the crowds and that rejection by his own family and all those misunderstandings by his followers and all that hatred from the religious authorities. My friends, that is why the Son of God allowed himself to be betrayed and arrested, convicted of false charges, mocked, spat upon, beaten and flogged. That is why he allowed them to so brutally nail him to the, that executioner's cross where he, he suffered such intense physical agony. And that is why... He experienced total abandonment as he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is why he willingly bore the divine wrath that our sins deserved. The author of life went all the way to the ultimate punishment of death. For God could not allow our sin to go unpunished. But yet in love, he was willing to take our punishment on himself. On that cross, Jesus experienced the anguish of an eternity of hell. That, my friends, is why he had to die. And so as we conclude, let's consider how we should respond to all of this. Well, first of all, I want to encourage us to actually dwell upon the awesome holiness of God. He is perfect and pure beyond our comprehension. And that realisation should make us keenly and humbly aware of the gravity of our own guilt. We know what we've done, don't we? We know what we deserve. How can we ever relate to such a God? How can we ever hope to experience his blessings today, let alone in eternity? But of course, then that knowledge should, should drive us toward the cross of Jesus Christ. For he is the only one who can rescue us. The only one who can save us. For our holy God, he is just full of grace and compassion. In his love, he is willing to accept another in our place. In his love, he presented his own son as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. It was Jesus who took up our pain and bore our suffering, who was pierced for our transgressions 
and crushed for our iniquities. That is why he had to die. And all that we need to do is to put our trust in him and in him alone. And my friends, once we grasp this awe-inspiring truth, then surely it will fill us with unspeakable joy and gratitude. For we were cursed, but now we are blessed. We were lost, but now we are found. We were dead, but now we live. Our friends, how glorious it is to know that we have Jesus as our perfect priest and that he offered himself as our perfect sacrifice and that he did that so that you and I can be saved. Let us praise the Lord for the wonder of his grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to give you our deepest thanks tonight for the wonder of the atonement. Lord, sometimes we forget that you are a holy God. Sometimes we fool ourselves into thinking that sin is no big deal. Lord, sometimes we don't realise that every sin we have committed must be paid for. But Lord, we pray that we might be reminded of these things tonight, reminded of your holiness and our unholiness. But Lord, we want to be reminded of that, not so that we will go deeper into guilt, but rather so that we will be more and more amazed at your grace. For Father, without us deserving it at all, you gave your own Son, Lord Jesus, you willingly came and we thank you with all of our hearts for the fact that you were willing to take our punishment and our penalty on your own shoulders and, and Jesus, that you were willing to pay our price, to pay our debt and set us free. We thank you, Lord, for the truth of the gospel. We thank you for rescuing us from the fate we deserved. We thank you that we can be forgiven, that we can know you as our loving Father and that we can look forward to an eternity with you. For we have been made righteous in your sight all because of what Jesus has done. Lord, I pray that each one of us here tonight would truly know and believe this gospel and Father, if there are any who do not yet put their trust in Jesus, we pray that you would work in their hearts that they too might see the wonder of your grace, the depth of your love and the glory of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Lord, may we take this wonder into the week and the month and the year ahead. Lord, may we know just how great and how wonderful you are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.